This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, folks. This is Matthew Christopher, and I'm here with another episode of the Abandoned America podcast. Before we get to the episode, though, I'd like to talk with you just for a minute about the podcast itself. As you know, if you've listened to both seasons so far, I've been experimenting with different formats. This season, I've had a lot of interviews with really terrific guests, and I plan to keep sharing more in the future. But one of the things that I think would be a good addition are shorter episodes focused on specific locations, in case you don't have the time to devote to an hour-long talk. So, moving forward, you can expect to continue hearing interviews with people who have interesting stories to share about their own experiences with abandoned spaces, but I'd also like to set aside some time for my own thoughts and experiences in episodes like this, too. Moving on to the episode itself. Judging by the comments I get on my photos, when most people think of the town of Gary, Indiana, they think of the song in Music Man. The Gary, Indiana of today bears little resemblance to the Burbank backlot the movie was filmed on, however. Today, we're going to look at the history of the town and we'll explore why roughly one-third of the buildings are abandoned, and talk a bit about some of the best-known ruins in the city. I feel I should point out beforehand that history can be pretty grim, particularly when it comes to an area where racism has been so prevalent, so consider this your content warning if listening to a podcast that discusses violence in broad strokes is too much for you right now. With that out of the way, let's talk about Gary. Once dubbed the City of the Century, this metropolis earns the moniker, both in its ascent and its decline. In fairness, it's not really accurate to label the city of Gary, Indiana itself as abandoned, and it's estimated that, as of 2021, approximately 68,000 people lived there. Yet at its peak in 1960, it had over 178,000 residents. This precipitous drop has led to a level of economic devastation that has left thousands of homes and buildings to rot. About 13,000 properties were considered blighted in a 2015 survey. That's over a third of the structures there. While many of the locations featured on my website are microcosms of the larger issues faced by their respective towns, the idea of attempting to chronicle the ruins of an entire city is daunting. Though Gary demands its own individual book or dedicated podcast series to give a more complete idea of the scope of the architectural and civic loss, my hope here is to at least give you an overview. One of the chief complaints leveled at those who explore modern ruins is that their work is exploitative, and it's not a criticism that's completely unfounded. Many consider neglected spaces to be fair game for idle consumption and entertainment, but they're often a crystallization of enormous trauma suffered by real people, gravesites, if you will. Hopefully you wouldn't enter a community flattened by a tornado without an appropriate degree of respect, and yet... The perception of ruins as playgrounds persists despite being born of social shifts that are just as destructive as any natural disaster. The U.S. Census Bureau lists the median household income in Gary is only slightly over half the national average. 
Nearly 39% of its population lives at poverty level, and just over half of the population above the age of 16 works in the civilian labor force. These are sobering figures, and ones I believe must not be forgotten when viewing the sad spectacle of the city's decline. It must also be remembered that, as with any area in the throes of a crisis, there are people who are still proud of their town, and who are still working to find a way to revive their neighborhoods. When a home's abandoned, there's a sense of sorrow as we confront the reflection of our own mortality, but when you're viewing a city in which thousands of structures are abandoned from homes to stores to churches to schools, my hope is that our empathy can stretch far enough to acknowledge that so many of the places the rest of us live in have been hit by similar losses in tentpole industries. Some areas were lucky enough to weather the storm, but a frighteningly large number were not. The city that would become America's largest company town was founded in the northwest corner of Indiana by U.S. Steel in 1906 and named after Judge Albert H. Gary, who had co-founded the corporation with banking magnate J.P. Morgan five years earlier. After covertly purchasing almost 10,000 acres of swampland on the south shores of Lake Michigan, U.S. Steel immediately started construction of the sprawling Gary Works, enticing workers from across the country with the promise of jobs in the new state-of-the-art mill. Even then, the town itself was an afterthought. The location was selected more for its proximity to shipping routes and railways than any idealistic vision about the quality of life that would be provided there. Nevertheless, as thousands of laborers poured in, the city blossomed. Notable architects across the country designed homes, churches, and civic buildings. It would be easy to call the decades that followed Gary's glory days, but like any factory-built and owned town, it was rife with corruption and economic disparity pretty much from the beginning. As the sparkling downtown was built, the deep undercurrent of bigotry that would one day prove a part of its undoing was becoming more problematic. European immigrants and blacks fleeing the Jim Crow laws in the South were flocking to the city, much to the chagrin of Indiana's Ku Klux Klan members, whose ranks dwarfed those in other northern states. The segregation and inequality that plagued the rest of the nation caused a deep schism in Gary, one that would ultimately tear it in half. As black residents moved into other areas outside the Midtown section of Gary, they were confronted with threats and violence, despite the fact that by the 1950s they constituted a third of U.S. Steel's workforce in the city. Driving through the downtown, it's hard to fathom what could have gone so wrong that it convinced so many of the people who lived there to leave a city full of such breathtaking buildings behind. One of Gary's most iconic ruins is the City Methodist Church, the vision of Dr. Grant Seaman. S-E-A-M-A-N, like Man of the Sea, not, you know. Anyway, Dr. Seaman convinced Judge Albert H. Gary not only to arrange for a matching donation of close to $400,000 in funds towards its construction, but also to personally provide a Skinner organ. An attached fellowship center named Seaman Hall once housed a gymnasium, a thousand-seat theater capable of hosting world-class plays as well as films, a banquet hall, gardens, and classrooms. The nine-story English Gothic church was completed in 1926 and a year later had a congregation of 1,700. Budget woes caused by the high maintenance costs beset the house of worship early on, but Seaman's progressive approach to the city's segregation issues also caused friction with his parishioners. Though his congregation was opposed to racial integration, Seaman held joint services with a nearby black Methodist church, petitioned for black patients to be admitted to the Methodist hospital, 
and spoke out against the screening of the wildly prejudiced cinematic ode to the KKK, The Birth of a Nation, at the nearby Orpheum Theater. His fears were not unfounded. Two years before City Methodist dedication, a young black man was doused in gasoline and set on fire by white assailants who were never caught. Assaults on Gary's minority citizens were a constant threat. Siemens' beliefs rankled members of the congregation, and they had him transferred against his wishes to a church in Ohio only three years after City Methodist opened. Dr. Seaman, who was once nicknamed Sonny Jim for his charisma and optimism, died in a car accident in 1944. He was reunited with his church once more only when his ashes were interred in the sanctuary. Membership peaked at 3,000 in the 1950s, but by the time of City Methodist's closure in 1973, it had waned only 320 congregants, many of whom didn't even regularly attend church services. The rooftop garden Seaman had hoped would crown his greatest achievement didn't materialize until years after the devastating downtown fire in 1997, when the third floor gymnasium ceiling collapsed and trees began to grow in the rubble. The exodus from the downtown that ultimately condemned the church was in part due to mounting unrest. By 1950, Gary was one of the most segregated cities in the United States, and it was becoming glaringly apparent that the double standards for its citizens could not last. Strikes and protests were increasingly frequent, and overseas competition in the steel industry brought about layoffs that rocked the town's economy, causing the crime rate to rise. Nearby towns such as Merrillville attracted middle-class residents and built shopping centers that directly challenged the stores on Broadway, which was the main thoroughfare in Gary that shoppers had once traveled from across the state to visit. Throughout the United States, urban living was losing its allure as those who could afford to do so and weren't excluded by redlining migrated to the suburbs. As businesses followed them, it created a self-perpetuating cycle. The less money cities had, the less desirable they became to those with money, and their exodus in turn increased the privations that drove them away. In 1968, Gary's residents elected one of the civil rights movement's rising stars, Richard Hatcher, as its mayor. Hatcher, 34 at the time, was the first African-American mayor of an American city with more than 100,000 people and he had appeared alongside luminaries like Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Jesse Jackson at rallies. His tenure as the city's mayor lasted nearly two decades, during which Gary's economy plummeted. While many blame him for the city's woes, the decline of the steelmaking industry that ravaged Gary was by no means isolated to that city or even Indiana. James Simmons writes in Post-War America, an encyclopedia of social, political, cultural, and economic history, quote, during its capacity-building phase in the 1950s, the steel industry had largely invested in outdated, flat-rolled mills, a technology that dated back to the early 20th century. Meanwhile, overseas competitors in Europe and Japan, which because of wartime destruction were forced to build their steel industries from the ground up, had invested in far more efficient integrated mills, allowing them to undersell U.S. producers by as much as 20% in the late 1960s." End quote. By comparison, Bethlehem Steel's plants in Lackawanna, New York, and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania were also faltering in the 1970s, as was the Homestead Steelworks in Pittsburgh. The effects of mergers and plant closures rippled across the Rust Belt, knocking out ancillary industries and the towns that depended on them. Unlike many mills, Gary Works continued to operate, but with a dramatically reduced workforce where it provided 30,000 jobs in the 70s. The number had shrunk to 6,000 by the 1990s. 
In the mid-1980s, the National Tube Division and Gary closed, followed by the Gary Screw and Bolt Company. The city was hemorrhaging jobs in a downsizing process that continues even now. For example, U.S. Steel closed its coke plant at the Gary Works in 2015, laying off an additional 323 workers, and it indefinitely idled its tin works in 2022. During his years in office, Hatcher worked to secure federal funding to combat poverty and crime, but it must have felt like trying to plug leaks in a foundering dam with his fingers. The business district was left in tatters. One of Broadway's crown jewels, the Palace Theatre, still remains as a grim memorial of better days. Opened in 1925 and composed as a Spanish castle complete with Greek and Roman statues and imported chandeliers, the palace could accommodate 3,000 patrons. Initially, its fare consisted of vaudeville acts, but in 1930, the theater switched to film. A few years before it closed in 1972, a man was stabbed in the lobby. My friend Matt Lambros writes in After the Final Curtain, quote, It reopened three years later as the Star Palace Theater, but closed again when the owner could not afford to pay the utility bills. In 1976, it reopened for the final time as the Star Academy of Performing Arts and Sciences, but shuttered soon after when funds from a government grant used to reopen it ran out." End quote. Little of its finery remains, although the pale likeness of a Spanish villa is still visible in the worn curtain hanging over the stage. The lobby is now shrouded in darkness, its vaulted ceiling towering three floors above a large pile of bricks that fell from it. Like many other lost landmarks, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like when it was in its heyday. There are traces, if you look hard enough, like the wooden railings or the graceful curves in the window that separate the lobby from the theater. Other buildings, like the Art Deco Post Office constructed in 1936, have been vandalized to the point where their original character is nearly indistinguishable. Closed in the 1970s, it was built as part of President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program and designed by Howard Lovewell Cheney, the architect behind the Washington National Airport. Though the superstructure is intact, the interior features have been smashed or stripped away to the point that determining what areas were used for is largely guesswork. During my visit, a small crowd of 20-somethings flocked around a young woman modeling at the base of a lone tree inside the post office's sorting area, posting photographs to Instagram and chatting happily. It seemed an odd juxtaposition to me, particularly since I'm so used to abandoned places being empty, but it marks a shift in the visitors who come to Gary now. At one time, they might have been patronizing Goldblatt, Sears, and Robux or Kresge's downtown, but now they're coming to take selfies amid the fragments of Gary's vanishing identity. With the resigned acknowledgement of the draw of disaster tourism, for a time, the city of Gary was charging visiting photographers $50 for a permit to shoot in abandoned buildings, but even this initiative seems to have evaporated. There was also talk of turning City Methodist into a ruin garden such as the ones found in Europe, which I think is a fantastic idea, although I'm not really sure how they'd manage the concerns of legal liability if someone was injured by something like a collapsing wall. There are also stories which I've been unable to corroborate of out-of-town photographers being robbed at gunpoint in the ruins, which is something I've also heard rumors of at the Packard plant in Detroit. The crime rate in Gary was so high that in 1993 it earned the dubious distinction of being the murder capital of the U.S., with a murder rate of 91 per 100,000 people. That's three times the rate of Chicago. The issue doesn't seem to have improved that much. In 2019, the rate was still higher than 95% of other U.S. cities. 
Despite efforts by officials to curb lawlessness, Gary's violent crime rates are still comparable to other notably unsafe cities like Camden, New Jersey. In a real-life horror story that particularly stands out to someone who explores deserted buildings, serial killer Darren Dion Van was arrested in 2014 for murdering local women and hiding their bodies in abandoned houses throughout the town. Though seven bodies have been found that are directly attributed to him, the founder of the Murder Accountability Project believes at least 18 murders in the area that took place between 1980 to 2008 fit Van's pattern, and Van claims to have killed many more across the country. The mind-bending volume of derelict homes in Gary mean there are many places left to look. The lifeless facades dotting the town dare you to try and mentally reconstruct them. The Perry Shaw Building, built in 1926, still has the beautiful arcade of lancet arches and terracotta mullions separating the windows, but barely any traces of the apartments or retail spaces that once occupied it are left. The front lobby section of the Gary Public Schools Memorial Auditorium, where the Jackson 5 won one of their early hometown talent shows, is all that's left of the massive 5,000-seat Mission-slash-Spanish Revival monument to those killed in World War I. It opened in 1927, only a year after City Methodist Church, and was a center for many of Gary's cultural and athletic events, as well as hosting noteworthy guests such as President Harry Truman and Frank Sinatra. The majority of the building was destroyed in the downtown fire of 1997. Now, collapsed concrete staircases on one end of the remaining structure dare trespassers to try their luck with those on the other side. The trip isn't worth it. Whatever noteworthy features that once adorned the interior are gone, leaving only the exterior's brick and terracotta veneer, emblazoned with the words art, music, and athletics, to remind you that once this place had been their home. The question I find myself coming back to again and again was, what was the dream that built Gary? It's different depending on who you ask. U.S. Steel was clearly there to make money, and for better or worse, that continues to be its primary goal. For the residents who migrated there from across the globe, many of whom were doing so to escape persecution elsewhere, the answer is probably much more relatable. They came in search of jobs, a safe community, opportunity, equality, things that are scarce commodities in Gary today. There's typically something awe-inspiring about ruins, but there was nothing rapturous about the derelict parts of the town to me. Wondering about these tombs, I usually feel I am where I belong, my home amongst the dead. But there's always been that part of me that desperately needs life to come back to. I wish I knew how to change the stark reality of the blocks and blocks of such palpable loss around me. This architectural carnage is not the result of progress, but rather an injustice so deep that it seems it can never be repaired. But it demands the effort. In one of the many closed school buildings that were once the pride of the city, I paused for quite some time at a bulletin board covered with fading photographs of the smiling young faces of the students who had gone there. Didn't these children deserve a more economically stable future? City officials and nonprofit groups are working at it, tearing down abandoned houses, creating community gardens, and putting together volunteer crews to clean streets. The problems they're addressing are not easy ones to solve, and I admire their determination in tackling them. They deserve success. At one point, when I approached the burned-out husk of a home to photograph it, I saw a young couple watching me from across the street. Would they call the police, I wondered? Being an outsider, the stories I'd heard of out-of-town photographers being robbed crossed my mind, too. Instead, they smiled and waved at me and continued on their way. I didn't meet a single resident of the town who was anything less than kind and welcoming. 
That's not to say the crime statistics should be ignored, but like any other American city, I believe the majority of people are kind and would help a stranger out if they were in need. That truth can't be forgotten or ignored. I wish I could have witnessed Gary during better days when I might have visited the stores on Broadway or watched a movie at the Palace Theater. These spaces are haunted not by phantoms, but by the accomplishments and struggles of those who have passed before us dissolving into obscurity. I'm always chasing their echoes, but never quite manage to hear their song. My own inability to heal the wounds I so studiously catalog stares back at me from every image. All I have to address them with are my photographs and words, and neither ever seem to be enough. That's it for the episode, friends. As always, I do my best to give a thorough, respectful, and accurate overview with the hopes that you'll leave the show with some new info and insight into a place you might not have thought much of otherwise beforehand. There are a lot of really sensitive and complex issues inherent in talking about places that are abandoned or left behind, and particularly if you're from Gary or the surrounding area, I hope you feel I did the subject justice. I'm always open to feedback on the show through social media, though. You can find me on Mastodon or Facebook. Just look up Abandoned America. Or just shoot me an email at admin at abandonedamerica.org. Although I have to confess, I'm pretty notoriously bad at prompt replies to emails, which is the result of being one person scrambling to do about 50 different jobs to keep the whole Abandoned America thing afloat. I also wanted to mention that one of the technical changes that you may notice in this episode is that I finally got a boom mic, which was possible thanks to my patrons on Patreon, so I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to them for helping me keep the show going. While I can't go back and re-record the interviews I did without it, and I do still have a few of those coming up, hopefully overall this will make the podcast a lot less clunky to listen to in the future. Speaking of my Patreon folks, they also voted on the subject of this episode, and if you want to join them in voting on what's coming up next on my website or podcast, that's the place to be. And that's at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Abandoned America. Maybe the next episode will be on the utter horror story that is the Forest Haven Developmental Center, or the story of Philadelphia's derelict ocean liner, the SS United States, or an abandoned theater with an unlikely love story. You tell me. The text for this episode is from my second book, Abandoned America, Dismantling the Dream, and I'd love to tell you to run out and buy a copy, but the publisher left the book business, so it's out of print and getting a copy can be kind of tough. So if that doesn't work, just go to my website, abandonedamerica.us, and either check out the show notes under the podcast tab for a link to the website gallery, or you can just type in abandonedamerica.us slash gary-indiana. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you've been listening to Abandoned America.